Our New Testament reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. The word of the Lord. Well, we're, this is the last sermon uh, that we're going to hear from, from Peter in his first letter. Um, if you've been with us this summer, we've been working through this letter, and we've been watching as this man instructs the early church, uh, new converts who are being persecuted, who are suffering all over the Roman Empire, that he instructs them on how to live in the world. And I think this letter is incredibly important for us in our time Um, because it tells us something about as we look around us, maybe we look in our own country, we look in the world, um, how do we react to the world? How do we live as, as God's people, as the bride of Christ? And we've seen over and over again that, that Peter reminds them of things that I, I probably never would have thought to remind them of. He doesn't give them a strategy or a game plan on how to sort of defeat the enemy. Instead, he does something really interesting. He, he grounds their mind um, once again in the fact that they have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That they have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and is reserved for them in heaven. That he tells them you were once not a people, but now you're God's people. 
that he begins to tell them of who they are, the reality of who they are in God's economy. And so that they remember that no matter what situation they're in, because what he begins to tell them then is that the way that they respond to even authorities that are placed over them or the way that they respond uh, to suffering is going to model the same Jesus that they follow. And so here today we come to this last chapter, and there's a lot here. Um, I'm going to try to zero in on what I think is Peter's just main point in this last chapter. I wish we had more time with this. In the coming weeks, in the next few weeks, um, we're going to look at some scripture that corresponds sort of like we did last year with our mission as a church. And so we'll take a few weeks to remind kind of ourselves of who we are um, and what God's calling us to. Um, But this morning we come to this last chapter and it's an important one. So let me pray before we talk about it. Father, we ask that you would help us to stand firm in the grace of Jesus. Um, Individually and as a church, uh, that we would never be ones who stand by our own strength or by our own knowledge or by our own theology or by our, our own accomplishments, but Father, that what we would stand firm in, that our identity would rest in, is the fact that we have been loved by you. Father, that it would make us unshakable no matter what comes our way. Father, would you do that for us? Would you keep us, um, as Peter's reminding them, keep us looking forward to the day that is to come? It's not something that we do very often, probably. It's something we should do more. Um, The day when Jesus himself will restore us and confirm us and establish us. Father, um, be with us now as we think about your word, and I pray that you would make it clear, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, back when I was a, a freshman in college, I um, started going to a campus ministry and I joined this guy's small group. And this small group met off campus. It met at a volunteer's house. Uh, one of the guys who was a medical student just offered to, to do a Bible study. And so a few of us would go over to his house one night in the week and spend time with him and I remember this guy, I don't remember, I really don't remember his name, but I do remember there was something about him that was really different and really unique. He was, um, because when I looked at him, I thought, you have every reason to kind of be a jerk, right? You ever met somebody like that when you first look at him? You're like, you kind of have every reason to be a jerk. He was really put together. He was really good looking. He was in medical school. And he drove this really cool BMW. And I kind of thought, like, why are you even spending time with us? But there was, I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't really think that much about it at the time. But what I realized is that this guy just, he didn't think a lot of himself. He just, all of those things to me were at first, and this says more about me than him, were at first very visibly impressive But he didn't seem that impressed by himself at all. And I didn't think about that much until one night when something happened. We were leaving um, this Bible study at his house, and a few of us were standing out in his front yard talking. And as we turned to go to our cars, um, I immediately realized that there was glass all over the sidewalk. 
and his window had been bashed out. His window of his BMW had been bashed out. I go over there to look in. His radio had been taken. Come to find out later, his books from medical school had all been stolen. And the thing that, I mean, this was like 22, 23 years ago. But this is still really clear in my mind. And it was so simple that you could easily miss it. But he came out of his house and he saw that what had happened. And this is what, this is what hit me then and this is what still sticks with me as I think about how I react to things in my own life. Is that the first thing that he did was he made sure we were all okay. And then he went and looked at our cars and made sure that nobody else's car had been broken into. It doesn't sound like much. You're like, that's your opening illustration. It, it floored me because I was furious, right? How dare someone invade your property and break into your car? And how, you know, I would have been so angry. And there was, what hit me then was that this guy was totally calm. And he was concerned more about us than he was about himself. And I think that there's something that, that about true humility. You can't fake it. That, that true humility, that, that actually what Peter is talking about in this last chapter, in this passage, true humility, there's something about it that there's, there's something absent in somebody who has humility. Did you notice it in the story? I think that what's absent is this inward sort of self-obsession. It's just not there. You just don't see it. There's this peacefulness that accompanies true humility, that there's a calm that accompanies true humility that I don't think is a coincidence. I really don't think it's a coincidence. Peter himself, the one who's writing this letter, we've talked a ton about Peter, so you know about Peter. Peter was not naturally a humble person. Peter was always the first to speak. Peter always thought he had the right answer. Um, Peter was not someone you would look at right away and think, well, this guy just seems so humble. Peter seemed proud. But something changed Peter. And as Peter writes this letter, and he comes to the end of the letter, of all the things that he could tell these people, these new Christians, it's like what he's saying is that the thing that I've learned the most, the thing that has changed me the most... The thing that I want you to have as the church in the world more than anything is the thing that I've learned that Jesus has taught me is that he has humbled me. He has shown me what I'm really like so that I don't go around simply pointing my finger at everyone else and what's wrong with everyone else. He has humbled me. Humility is the work of the gospel in the life of the believer. It's what it produces. It's what it ultimately, and it will produce it in the life of the believer. Jesus will make sure, if you belong to him, that you become somebody who is humble. Isn't that good? And this is the reason sometimes we don't like our lives, and we don't like the turns as we've looked at 
um, in the last few weeks, the, the turns and the twists that our lives take and some of the, the trials that we undergo and some of the suffering that we undergo, we don't like some of it. But could it be true that what God is doing is in his love and his compassion for us, that he is doing this, that he is making us people who are humble? I hope so. Because humility is not something that just simply a, a select few people have. It's not like the thing that somebody is born with and you're like, well, they're just such a naturally humble person. No one is naturally humble. Humility is something that is produced in us. It's something that we're called to. In fact, Peter says that all of us, all of us are to clothe. I love the imagery that he, that he gives us. That all of us are to clothe ourselves with humility toward one another. To put it on. And so this morning, I just want to ask three questions. And I think it's, this is very simple. The questions are this. What is humility? How do we get it? And what is the result? What is humility? How do we get it? And what is the result? So what is humility? I think that uh, it's fair to say that all the things that Christians are, are sort of called to be or called to that humility might be the one that we want the least, right? It's not the one that the world is sort of impressed with or the world is, is clamoring after. I mean, if you look at our, our current climate, and we could say almost any climate that has ever existed, that humility is not something that people aspire to or that people value in the world's economy. In order to be somebody or to get somewhere, you've got to put yourself first. You've got to talk about yourself a lot. You've got to accomplish a lot of things and you've got to make sure that people see them. But in, in Peter's context, this word humility, but there's some people who value humility, right? It's not all sort of looked down upon, but in Peter's context, almost exclusively, this word humble or humility was used in a derogatory way. I mean, you think about like that person, the, they're very of humble means. That, they, that this was something, this was not a trait that you would want. This is just not something that people would aspire to. And I think that their society um, was a lot like ours in the sense that ours loves to praise self-sufficiency. It loves to praise self-reliance. It loves to praise the attitude that, yes, I did this and I did this on my own. Come and look at me and look at my gifts and look at the ways that I've um, worked on them and I've established them. Come look at me. The one who seemed to be the strongest was the one who's most admired. And Peter, at the end of this letter, of all the things they get to tell them, he says, this is what I want you to hear. I want you to humble yourself. I want you to clothe yourself, not in, 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 in what other people can see and be drawn to. I want you to clothe yourself in humility to one another. What does that mean? I want to think about it in the context of this line that he quotes, and it's, It's said in many other places in the Bible. It pops up a lot. And the line is this, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Why does God oppose the proud? I think, I mean, if if you're thinking about that statement, that God opposes the proud... It's kind of a scary statement, and it should be. 
Because what Peter is saying is that there is a God, and he is the maker and the creator of all things, that he's holy, he's just, and there is something that he opposes. And so that should catch our attention. And what he opposes, he opposes pride. Now, you can think of all the other things that could be said there. That God opposes this certain thing or this certain thing. He opposes pride. Why does he oppose pride? Because the essence of pride is this. The essence of pride is putting ourselves in the place of God. That's what's at the heart of pride, and this is why it, it, it offends God, is because God made you, Right? God puts, I mean, if you could think about it this way, if there's a breath that you take right now, it's because God allows you to take it and kind of pushes the molecules of air into your nostrils and allows your lungs to function. And pride says, I don't need you. I don't want you. I don't want to ask you for help. Why would I ask you for help? I've got this. I can do this on my own. God opposes the proud for this reason because the proud have already opposed God. They've already said no to God. They've already said, I I, I got this. The proud hate asking for help. That one hurts a little bit. You know, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking one of the ways uh, that I, in my own life, I I, want to test my own pride is I ask myself this question, and I think it's a good one to ask, is do I pray? I mean, do I really pray? Do I, do I before um, I'm, going to, I'm faced with a problem or I'm faced with a situation that I know that I can't handle, you know, is my reaction, first of all, to figure out every possible way that I can solve it? Or is my reaction to pray? to admit that I can't do this. I can't handle this. I can't accomplish this. I can't figure this out, but I know that you can. The one way to figure out if pride is creeping into our lives is to simply look at our prayer life. But look at this. God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Does this mean that God rewards those who are humble with grace. Because I think you could read that statement and you could kind of twist it around and you could say, okay, well, he gives grace to the humble, so I'm going to be humble so that God gives me grace. Well, that would deny the very definition of what grace is because grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. And it would fly in the face of the rest of Scripture. And so he's not saying um, God gives grace to the humble as a reward for being humble. Peter's saying that that the proud refuse grace. They hate the idea of charity because it offends their ego, but the humble love grace. Why do the humble love grace? Because they know themselves. To be humble is to be honest. To be humble is to really know yourself. And this is the journey that Peter has been on. This is why humility came over time, because Peter recognize things in himself that he could not change and that he could not fix and that he could not figure out and he was continually offered grace. What he's saying is this, 
is that the essence of being a Christian is humility. The essence of being a Christian is humility. It's it's saying, I cannot on my own make my life meaningful. I cannot accomplish or satisfy enough to fill the void that is within all of us. I cannot be on my own a good enough husband or a good enough father or a good enough wife or a good enough worker or a good enough student. I cannot find peace in my life no matter how much I accomplish. I cannot produce it. Humility is repenting from stubbornly trying to fix ourselves and resting in the fact that Jesus offers us grace. This is why God loves the humble, because humility is, and this is what I saw in this this opening illustration that I gave you, is that humility was simply a soul that is at rest. It is at rest in Jesus. It's a soul that, that delights in him, that knows that I don't have to figure everything out on my own, and I know that I can't. And so you go, well, that sounds good. How do I get that, right? And here's where the catch is with humility because it's like if you leave and you kind of go, put it on the top of my list to be humble this week. You're not going to be humble, right? If you do that, you're, you're saying basically I have it in me to produce humility. And if I work hard enough to produce humility, I can produce humility, which is really rooted in pride, right? And so... Peter instead, I love what he does in this passage because, and I'm really focusing in on verses five through seven, but, but Peter basically says this, that, that humility is the byproduct of something else. It's not that we leave and go, all right, got to figure out how to be more humble, um, put that on the list. It's that humility comes from something else. And what does it come from? Let's look at verses six and seven. He gives us this command. He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then he tells you what that looks like. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, some versions put a period after chapter, I mean, after verse 6. And it shouldn't be there because verse 7 is a subordinate clause. And you remember what a subordinate clause is from grammar class? No. A subordinate clause just simply explains the main clause. And so it would be like if I said, you should eat healthy. Always making sure to have fruits and vegetables. Having fruits and vegetables explains what it means to eat healthy. And so this is what he's saying. He's saying that the heart of humility is this. At the heart of humility, and this is not easy, at the heart of humility is casting your anxieties upon God. At the heart of humility is casting your anxieties upon God. Let me say it a third time. At the heart of humility is casting your anxieties on God. It's trust. It's trusting in him. It means that at all times and in all places, you are putting your burdens on him because you understand and you know and you have seen that God actually wants your burdens. He actually cares about your burdens. And he wants you to bring them to him. Humility is admitting 
that you can't do it and simply trusting in the one who can. And how in the world are we supposed to do that? How do we do that? I think it's only, it's only remotely possible if you believe the last little phrase in verse 7. The last little clause says this, because he cares for you. It's, it's hard to believe that, right? It's, it's hard for Peter's audience to believe that in the midst of what they were going through. It's hard for you to believe that this morning because of what you're going through, and we're all going through something. It's hard to cast my anxieties upon God and believe in that moment. He actually cares. It may not be working the exact way I want to, but I'm going to cast my anxieties upon him. I'm going to humble myself under his mighty hand. Why? Because he actually does, he does care for me. The more we believe that he actually cares for us, the more we begin to turn to him when we're tired or when we're anxious or when we're overwhelmed or when we're in trial or we're suffering. If I don't believe that he cares, what will I do? I know what I will do. I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to do it on my own. How do we know he cares then? I always think back to what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 2. As he's writing to them and they're kind of bickering with one another and they're not clothing themselves with humility, that he says to them to have this mind among themselves that is the mind of Jesus, that uh, though he was equal with God, he he did not see that as a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. And he made himself a servant, becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. How do I know that he cares? Well, I look at Jesus. And Jesus became, Jesus humbled himself. Why? Because Jesus actually loves me. It's maybe the first thing you learned in Sunday school. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it's really the last thing that Peter is telling them in this letter, that I want you to believe this. Because everything in your experience and what the world will tell you is that no, he doesn't. No, it's not really true. Peter says, cast your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. True humility doesn't come from looking more at yourself. It comes from looking more at Jesus and being so captivated and amazed by the fact that he actually cares for you that that our first instinct is to give our burden and our anxiety to him to come under his mighty I love that 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 imagery humble yourself under his mighty hand so what is the result of that I'll finish with this and I want to give you three things and the result of that is at the beginning, if you go back, this is, humility is all over this chapter, but if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, um, I think that one of the results of humility is, is the way that we give and receive instruction and oversight. I mean, this is the context in which he's talking uh, about this. What does he say? He's talking to the elders in the church, and this is pertinent to our church because in a couple months we'll be electing elders in our congregation. And he says this to them. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, 
as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That what Peter's saying is that humility and only humility allows us to lead others with genuine concern and with love. But it also, and it's implicit in this, is that it allows you to be led. That it's not that you're always against authority or suspicious of authority or think the worst of authority, but that you actually, humility actually says, maybe somebody else has something good to say to me. Maybe I need to hear it. But I think the second thing that humility produces is that at the center, humility is casting our anxieties and burden upon Jesus. Then I think the result of humility, and we saw this um, a few weeks ago when we looked at suffering, that he even tells them to rejoice in the midst of it, is that I think that the result of humility is, is, is a true joy, is, is a deep joy, is a joy that doesn't go away. Even in the face of difficult things. Let me, let me illustrate this. Um, this was many years ago now. Um, I was on, I took my kids on a hike. And we went up to De, DuPont State Forest. And at that time, um, I think like now my son is old enough, he could probably carry me down the trail. But at this time he was about four, maybe five. And he brought a backpack along with him. And in that backpack, you know, he had like, like one toy and a towel and a water bottle and it weighed like all of three pounds. And he's walking down the trail and as we go about a mile, I realize he's, he's really starting to lag behind and I can hear sort of that whine begin. Kind of the high pitch, like, why, like what are we doing? And he's pull, I look back and he's pulling on his backpack straps. And so I'm like, hey, buddy, like, I'll, take, I'll hold your backpack. Um, just here, hand it over, you know? And he's like, mm, doesn't want to do it. Keeps pulling on it. We go a little further, it's the same thing. Go a little further, the same thing. And finally, um, you know, I, what, it, what I realized is like, that's his backpack. He wants to carry it. He wants to be able to do it. But eventually he handed, he handed it over. He had had enough. And he gave it to me. It was not hard for me to carry, right? But the result was immediate. Because it wasn't just that he like caught up to us and walked alongside us. The result was that he began to bound down the trail. And he, looked, he was looking at everything and exploring things and really starting to soak it in and was actually enjoying it. And because it finally gave, it came to the point where he just said, I'm going to hand this burden over. I'm going to hand it over to God. And that's so simple and it's so hard, right? I mean, it's hard for a four-year-old. It's hard for a 41-year-old. It's hard for an 84-year-old. But I want to ask you this morning, what are the burdens that you're carrying and in, in what ways are you refusing to let go of them? Are you clinging to things maybe this morning I've had to ask myself this a lot this week as I've thought about this passage. Are you clinging to things in pride because you don't want to humble yourself under God's mighty hand? Could one of the reasons be 
that you don't believe that he actually cares for you. The last thing, result of humility, is this. And, and all of these things deserve their own sermon series, but I can just touch on them. The last thing is this, that he shifts right into it, is that humility allows us to resist the attack of the evil one. And Peter acknowledges that there is an evil one and that he prowls around like a, a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour Someone who has humbled himself under God's mighty hand, um, they're able to resist the things that they couldn't before. They can flee from the things that they once looked to to satisfy them. It means that they don't have to fear suffering as they once did. You see, the church is a community of people that were not better than the world. In fact, what we've seen in many ways is that we're worse. We're not brighter. We're not more put together. We are ones who've simply admitted as we've come to the end of our rope, I cannot do it. I cannot do it on my own. And we've humbled ourselves under his mighty hand. And the good news this morning for you, if you find yourself there, is that God loves to give grace to the humble. Don't leave here today trying to make yourself more humble. Instead, leave by looking at his mighty hand, his love, and by casting your fears and your anxiety upon him. Be honest about where you are as you come maybe to this table in a few minutes and receive his grace. That's what produces humility. Humility. Let me pray. Father, thank you for what your word shows us because we would never come to that conclusion, uh, most likely on our own. Um, We thank you this morning that you even humble us, that you are willing to do that um, so that we might find uh, true hope and true rest in you. We pray that you would continue to do that in the life of this church in the life of all of us, that you would allow us to clothe ourselves, each one of us, with humility toward one another. Um, we pray that those, would be able, those around us would be able to look and see um, that there is something different that has happened in us, what we value and what we love and what we're seeking. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.